One of the ideas that's at work behind most of what we do at this podcast can be summed up with the phrase, when healthcare works best, it's because whole persons are caring for whole persons. And what do we mean? I think at root is the notion that the person in the bed is not a diagnosis. They're not a sack of symptoms sitting there. They're whole people with hopes and fears and connections to communities. They have a history. They have a perceived future that their present illness may be confounding. And they have an understanding of how that illness fits into their lives and the lives of the people they love. That's the patient as a whole person. But what about the caregiver? Remember, the mantra is whole persons caring for whole persons. The provider, too, has hopes and fears and connections with their patients and their peers and the community at large. And just like the whole persons they're taking care of, they have a history, too. Okay, it's the first day of medical school, and you look around the room. The youngest person was 23, and the oldest person was 37. One of my colleagues turns to me and goes, who in the bleep is 37? (laughs) Does it make a difference in their doctoring when people start their medical training later in life? I was thinking about the quote by William Osler, the good physician treats the disease, the great physician treats the person with the disease. And that is easier, I think, when you've got a little more experience and you can say that, you know, this this is not the diabetic in room seven. This is Mr. Collins, who is a person with a unique story, who has his own losses and his own hopes and fears that uh, are going to have an impact on the way we work together to help him achieve maximum health. On today's program, conversations about starting medical school a little later in life. And we'll have a preview of our next episode that will focus on gender-affirming care for kids. Stay with us. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Every year, a small number of people begin their training as physicians later in life than is typical. In their mid to late 30s, say, or their 40s even, and sometimes even their 50s. And we were curious, does it make a difference? Does coming to medicine as a second career or even a third career have an impact on your training, on your relationships with your peers, with your mentors, with your patients? Does having some other experience change your view of medicine? So hi, Tom McNally. I am a pediatric palliative care and rehabilitation medicine doctor, and I work at UC San Francisco. I finished medical school at age 43. Did you approach your training differently because you had some experience before you were in med school? I absolutely did. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of it. I was a high school teacher and a school administrator before I went into medicine, and I was teaching English. I was sort of in language arts, basically. And so it was a fairly significant shift to go from that work into sciences. So I did pre-med courses and then became a uh, medical student and uh, found that the experience of having lived in different work cultures 
where other things are valued, perhaps, uh, or there's a different focus on um, uh, how we, we uh, interact with the world or what, what the way we think about problems, uh, helped me to realize that there were that the medical culture is extremely powerful, it's really strong, and it, but we don't always have to internalize it uh, completely. It may actually not serve us to uh, internalize it too completely if we over-prioritize, for example, um, the cognitive side of things and miss the affective or emotional side of connecting with patients and one another. So it sounds like you're saying that it was easier for you to observe the environment that you're being trained in and be able to adapt to it. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think all of us, when we go into a new profession, we're constantly asking that question, do I belong here? Do I have the right skills? Do I, um, do I have what it takes basically to be a doctor? Or in my case earlier was, did I have what it takes to be a teacher? And I knew that I had what it took to be a teacher and I could step outside and say, are these things that seem to be implicitly asked for me in order to be a physician, are they really true? Or is this just something that becomes kind of received knowledge? So it did help me. It helped me to let go of some things that might have been otherwise uh, burdensome to carry uh, an uncertainty about my um, uh, ability to be a, a physician. Hi, I'm Tara Kimbison. I finished my med school training at the age of 46, and currently I practice as a locums physician in Midwest. My experience has been that I intentionally delayed going into medical school. I wanted to join the Peace Corps, and that was part of my bucket list. And I was told that if I wanted to do a Peace Corps after going to med school, that I was told that was not going to be possible. So I did research and Peace Corps and worked in Africa and Middle East and decided now this was my time to go to med school. So to me, it was a whole process that I really enjoy every aspect of it, from learning, taking care of the patients, being with the caregivers, giving counseling. It's just, and I enjoyed every aspect of specialty. So you, I was in for 100%. There was no doubt because I just, I knew that I wanted to become a doctor then. So, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I went in with the open-mindedness. I didn't set on saying, I'm going to do a surgery or I'm going to do internal medicine. Instead, I said, I'm going to go and be the best I can be. And that with that attitude, I think it, it allowed me to choose the subspecialty I wanted to be, which is now... Parkinson's disease and movement disorders. And I thoroughly enjoy it every day. I'm very grateful for it. such a great honor to be in this field. My name's Kevin Murphy. I currently serve as the executive director for the Palliative Practice Group, which is a system level machine for quality improvement, best practices, growth and strategy out of Providence Health System. Providence is a 52 hospital system on the West Coast, and we serve both primary care all the way through specialty and acute care and hospice in many regions. Uh, palliative care was really more of a calling than a career for me. I was a late career physician entry from social work. And so it made sense to me from the get-go. It wasn't my first choice. I was leaning very heavily towards surgery and obstetrics but life happened and palliative care fit perfectly. And I was one month shy of my 40th birthday when I graduated from medical school. Do you think being older made a difference in how your training 
progressed? I think it made a huge difference because of the just decisions that were made in both sacrifice and intent. I had a career, I had a really good job, and I chose to give that up to go to medical school, which required not just a sacrifice by myself, because medical school is a different kind of thinking than you do in graduate school. I had a bachelor's and a master's at this point, and in graduate school, I used to joke that I got more credit for arguing against the current theory than I did for agreeing with or just reiterating what was believed. You can't do that in gross anatomy or in histology um, labs. Uh, You memorize, you learn, you regurgitate, you move on. And that was a challenge. Um, I was not ready for that. and, And I struggled in the first probably six months of medical school to retrain those brain cells, those synapses to, to work in that way. Did you ever allow yourself to think, oh dear, you've made a mistake here? Probably every day for the first six months. I never felt less intelligent and I never felt rested for almost the entirety of the first two years of medical school. Hmm. It was a challenge. But my wife and I had two kids. When I entered medical school, we had two more during medical school. And all of those additional challenges and those additional responsibilities were real. Um, Those were choices we made. Those were positive in every way, shape, or form, but were another added lift to the everyday burden. I had to juggle my life, my wife, my relationship, my marriage, my children, my family, my all of my um, debts and expenses, and this new thing called medical school, which I hadn't really prepared for in the way that a normal transitioning student does. They go through college, apply, get in, and start. And I had gone through, this was now my third trajectory. So it was a little different. My name is Dr. Rebecca Armendaris. I currently work in palliative medicine in Scripps Health in San Diego. And I was approximately, I see, 41 when I graduated from medical school. Tell me about the relationship that you had with your peers. Do you think they held you in a different place because you were a little bit older than they were? Well, they didn't know right away. Um, There was an interesting moment during our orientation where they put the slides of the um, demographics of our class and the youngest person was 23, and the oldest person was 37, which was me. And um, one of my colleagues turns to me and goes, who in the bleep is 37? (laughs) And so um, I didn't say anything for the first couple of years. I looked young for my age, which was really good. Um, So none of my colleagues knew it, I think, until the end of my second year, and then everybody was very surprised. But um, but it did give me an advantage, I think, because in medical school, everybody's very competitive. And when you're older, uh, you don't have that competitive nature in the sense of um, you want to uplift your peers. So I ended up becoming more of a, I call it the aunt of my medical class. That was the relationship I had. Everybody would come to me with their problems. Um, I would try to encourage people. And um, so I kind of became like a mother hen of my um, medical class, which was great. I loved it. That's a great story. Um, What about your relationship with attendings? They're good and bad. It was interesting. Mostly good. 
And um, because I think they were, we were mostly the same age or in the same age group. And um, I, everybody knew that there was an old person in the class. So I actually was a little bit of a um, kind of a, a novelty. So as soon as I went into a rotation, I was immediately singled out as, okay, you're the sort of the, I guess, matriarch <laughs> of the, um, of the class. So my conversations with my attendings, I think were much more peer on peer. Um, they could speak, they spoke to me differently than they spoke to the younger students. And I found that sometimes made me uncomfortable because I could relate to the attendings and our conversations were, um, I think much more mature and I was not intimidated by speaking to somebody of my own age. Um, and I was not, um, when you're older and you realize you don't know something, you go, I don't know, but let me find out. Or can I go find out? Or can you tell me in a different way? When you're a young person training in medicine and you say, I don't know, you're probably just scared to death and want to just run away. <laughs> or may try to bullshit your way out of the situation. Or BS your way or try. Yes. And I saw that a lot. And um, I think you've heard of the terms pimping in medicine in the old school of uh, training. I Fortunately, my medical school was not like that. I had a wonderful medical school. I went to Creighton, which is a uh, Jesuit medical school. So we are very much uh, use the mentor-mentee um, training uh, sort of structure. And so we were never pimped, but we were definitely asked questions. And I, was, and I would always say, because I was taught this by my own grandfather, if I don't know, let me find out. And I answered all my questions like that if I didn't know something. And that's a completely different... Um, I think just advantage that you have when you're older. Yeah. Now, um, I did actually become friends with one of my professors and I thought, because you're such a neat individual <laughs> and she just thought that was great. And we still correspond over email and um, we have an interesting relationship. And I actually, another psychologist that taught at our medical school, I actually became sort of collegial friends with. And then, um, so that was an advantage, I think. Uh, and uh, But the disadvantages then where sometimes people, um, if a certain genre of attending just just would not acknowledge me because they're like, what are you doing here? You have no business being a physician. And I didn't run into that at my own institution, but I ran into that at other institutions that I rotated in the different states. Hmm. And that was an interesting um, uh, interesting uh, uh Thing to, to experience mostly was an older person and usually and I'm sorry to say this mostly male <laughs> older white male um, professor who would like sort of traditional physician um, was just like uh, I don't you what are you gonna do are you gonna why did you become a nurse I got that a lot wow. even after I was already in medical school yeah it was very interesting but you know when you're older you kind of brush it off you're like I've been doing this for a long time I've been an older woman for a long time <laughs> You get used to it. So several of you in this panel are in palliative medicine now. And I'm um, I'm curious about that because it's such a relational um, practice. Um, it's it, the, the relationship between physician and patient, physician and family, physician and provider, peers, uh, is so crucial. Um, do you think you were drawn to it because of the way you trained or do you think that's just who you are and uh, it was sort of an accident that you trained at the age that you trained? I think age has a definite um, component to it and there's two things I would like to talk about. One, 
Um, I think you have to, it has to be part of your personality. Palliative medicine is not easy. You're dealing with difficult conversations every day. You're dealing with people dying every day. You're dealing with trauma. Um, and you have to be the calm person in the room. And this is not just one family at a time. It's four or five families a day. And um, dealing with grief and a dealing with um, medical communication in a very difficult critical time. So you have to have that personality because you have to love that. And if you don't love it, you'll burn out. So I think for me personally, I had experience in that. I had hospice experience in my own family. I have a very pragmatic family culture around death where um, I come from a half German Irish family and the other half is Mexican American. And the Mexican Americans actually are very dramatic about death, but the Germans are very dramatic, pragmatic. And so I think I brought that personally to palliative medicine. And um, my other board, I'm double boarded in physical medicine, which is also deals with a lot of trauma, spinal cord injury, stroke, brain injury. So you have, I was trained to talk about a lot of difficult conversations just with the kind of nature of medicine that I practice. So it was a very easy transition for me to go into palliative medicine out of physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is also known as physiatry. So, um, and then I got, I got trained. I was so lucky to do a fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is a world renowned cancer center. So my particular expertise is in cancer patients which is called supportive oncology within palliative medicine. So it's a little bit of a, a niche market inside of a niche consultation service. And um, being older, you definitely have so much more, what I call um, life experience, obviously. But when you're walking up to a patient's family, you have, um, I don't know what the word I was looking for, but you have, you have more... Uh, they believe you that they, they're going to, you have more collateral in your, in your life experience, in your age. So I have a little bit of gray here and I don't dye it out because that gives me more of an, a strong opinion and trust. So if I was a 25 year old young woman coming up and having that difficult conversation, which I think I could still do if I was well-trained, that family is going to perceive it much different than I'm now I'm 55 and can sit and say, I understand um, and palliative medicine can sometimes be a sunset career move for older physicians. So I have a great story, of a, a quick story. A friend of mine who, and I both went into medicine at the same age, at 37. She became a surgeon, a trauma surgeon, and a, a critical care ICU physician. So now fast forward, we're both in our exact same um, er, uh, levels of our uh, career. And she turned to me, she says, I think I want to become a palliative medicine physician because I have these difficult conversations with my patients all the mm. time, but I don't want to be in the OR anymore. It's killing my body, right? At this age. So a lot of people in medicine go into palliative care as a sunset career mm. move. And a lot of fellowships have older oncologists are a really common person who go into palliative medicine. Tom McNally. You know, I think uh, because I went into it a little bit later, I started off in rehabilitation medicine, which also allows one the opportunity to get to know patients really well, especially if they're recovering from a serious injury and you're taking care of them in the hospital, you know, seeing them day after day over a period of weeks and sometimes months. But I think because I had been a teacher and I was really interested in stories, I was an English teacher, and because what I, one of the things I loved about being a teacher was the time outside of the classroom uh, connecting with students and their parents um, about 
their journey through school, what was hard for them, what was challenging. That, yeah, I was predisposed to being interested in people in that way. And I think you're right, Sean. I really appreciate your saying that. I think palliative care is a deeply relational um, field. And it's not just with our patients and our families, but also with our colleagues, because I think part of what we do is help our colleagues, uh, both physicians and nurses and actually respiratory therapists, other th other healthcare providers, navigate the grief and sadness of um, caring for people who are suffering. Mm. This is a silly question, but um, I'm hoping it elicits profound <laughs> answers. If you were the um, king and queen of the world, and we're going to redesign medical training, what would you change? What would be different about the way physicians are trained? Um, definitely the hours, and that has that has gone down in the time. I was at 100 hours, 120 hours when I was training per week, and now I think they're down to 80. It's still unreasonable. I think that needs to go down to minimal 60, because you'll work 60 hours a week as an attending. So I think that's reasonable as a trainee. But the other thing is something I love, which I'm a storyteller. So I do improv comedy, and I also do, and I'm also an artist, and I do story, I'm a storyteller, so I'm a big um, fan of the moth. And there's this huge trend right now in something called narrative medicine, and you can actually get a degree in narrative medicine. Rita Charon was a guest on this podcast a couple months ago. Oh, fantastic. Yes. So, um, and that is a skill that you just need. You need to be able to tell a story, not just medical, and you have to be able to, t and when you do it, you incorporate the patient as a person. They're not just some 25, you know, 52 year old male with blah, 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 blah. So they're actually a human being. And when I was in medical school, they were just starting to to test out narrative medicine. And we actually did a pilot study in our second year with our um, dean. And he came in and actually did narrative medicine with us and told us a story about a, a case instead of presenting it like a medical case and did testing whether we remembered things better or not. And the whole, all the groups that got the narrative part remembered the case much better than the people who got the traditional presentation so I think that's what I would do. And you can, you'd have to train your teachers to do it. Can you imagine teaching narrative anatomy and narrative medicine? <laughs> well, I actually have thought about this a lot because I did work as um, a, a medical school clerkship director when I was at the University of Washington before I came down here and was on our curriculum committee there as well. And we did a redesign. And I think there are two or three main things I would suggest. One is I'm a... Um, I really believe in, in shifting the curriculum basically on its head. Classically, it's two years of basic science and then two years of clinical work. And to my mind, ideally, you would connect basic sciences with clinical work as much as possible. So say, for example, you're doing an anatomy course. If you could also be doing a, um, a radiology or a surgical or a pathology course at the same time that connects your basic science uh, work with clinical work, then I think those they, they could move side by side and there would be a scaffolding, a structure that makes the learning that you're getting in each place inform one another. So you're doing endocrinology when you're learning about um, uh, hormone uh, synthesis and ho hormone um, uh, activity in the body. 
for example. So building the those two things so, so that they're more, more aligned or alternatively having the opportunity to come back and do a, a more intensive review of basic science while you're in the midst of your um, clinical time would be one thing. The other thing I would do is really, really prioritize the development of humanistic skills um, and humanistic attributes and cultivate those and talk about the things I just mentioned, which is that you're going to face grief, sadness, sorrow, difficulty, and starting to develop skills and techniques to uh, manage that and to cultivate your humanity and really saying that as part of what we do in training. Uh, and then finally, what I would suggest is that everybody should have a uh, hospice or a palliative medicine rotation in their first year of medical school. And that's because I'm a palliative medicine doctor. <laughs> it's the fundamental uh, component of, of, uh, of medical care. But I do think it would be immensely important in terms of developing relationships and also coming to the very difficult uh, confrontation with our own mortality, which I think informs our ability to be the best possible doctor. And acknowledging that death is part of the trajectory of, of human living. And none of us are going to get out of here, including every one of your patients. No one's going to get out of here alive. And to treat death as a failure in a, as a clinician is seems really wrongheaded to me. I agree. Yeah. You know, I uh, heard this story. I hope you don't mind if I take a couple more minutes to, to relate this. Um, a really wonderful writer and uh, physician, Ira Bayok, uh, has given a, a talk where he asks, you know, everybody in the room, who's a physician? Let's say a hundred hands go up. And he says, how many of you were uh, trained to deliver babies? And all hundred hands go up. And how many of you actually do deliver babies right now? And maybe 10 hands go up or 15. And he says, how many of you were trained to take care of dying people really at the end of their lives? And, you know, very few hands will go up. And how many of you are actually doing that right now? And then 80, 90 people will put their hands up. And so that reflects that mismatch of there is something we're getting trained sometimes to things that we don't do and not trained to things that of things that we do actually have to do and, and could do much better. We've heard about that Ira Bayak character around uh, this program. So uh, thank you for bringing him up. I want to go to Dr. Kimbison. If you could redesign medical training, what changes would you make? Well, how would it be different? No, I think I pretty much agree with Dr. McNally's, you know, the way we combine the basic science and clinical side of it. But what I would also add that onto it is early exposure to patients, just as simple as having to have that bedside manner, the respect for the patients. I think if we start that, even from day one, to have that exposure just to sit in, in one of the attendings, how the attending carries himself around, I think that's very kind of nice. And it gives you that motivation. Ah, this is what I'm going to be. Having the early exposure and continue to have the great grand rounds would be wonderful because I think some settings, the grand rounds, right? Patients actually coming in and giving their side of the story, right? Dr. Murphy, um, what would you change? What would be different? Wow. I think the biggest issue with the current trajectory towards a career in medicine is the measurement and decision-making process that brings us to becoming a doctor. The weight on biological sciences and the weight on the MCAT and testing of that sort completely forgets the fact that we are treating people. 
And all of our patients were people long before they became our patients. All of our patients had wellness before illness. And this rubric of science and mandated testing, and, and testing is not bad, I'm not trying to say that, but the methodology that's used puts a higher weight on rote memorization than it does on human interaction and treating people. My guests today are four physicians who began their medical training later in life. We'll be back with that conversation in just a few moments when we'll talk about finances and the cost of a medical education, among other things. But I want to take just a moment to invite all of you to be sure to join us for the next episode of the Hear Me Now podcast, when we'll be talking about gender-affirming care for kids with pediatricians, endocrinologists, parents, and trans kids themselves. I very vividly remember like just being always slightly uncomfortable. For me, it felt like I was like acting in a role of being a girl. Like it never really was quite there because I was not. And I was like, just that was not who I was. So we read the book, I Am Jazz. Remember your teacher read I Am Jazz? Oh, yeah. And then we had a conversation about the word identify. Identify. Which I don't think that that would, should even be a conversation now because identify kind of almost Boop. invalidates who you actually are. All I remember at the time was one girl raised her hand and she said, well, I'm a girl and lots of people think that only boys can like Minecraft, but I like Minecraft. <laughs> you remember that? I well, don't remember that. And a, a boy, I think it was Nathan, raised his hand and said, hey, I like Minecraft too. And he pointed at his <laughs> Minecraft shirt. And then that's what it became about. The first graders didn't care. <laughs> See, it proves that homophobia and transphobia is taught. Yeah. It's learned from yeah. the parents. Yeah. So if you don't raise your kids in a hateful environment, they won't be homophobic yeah. or transphobic or yeah. racist. Yeah. At our synagogue, he's been embraced and loved as who he is in a really drama-free way. But immediately, it became clear that if we were going to love and support and affirm our trans kid, it meant we were going to have to defend him from our state legislators. Before we had told our parents, before we had told the school, before we had told anyone but really our immediate family at home, we had told the General Laws Committee of the Missouri House because immediately it was clear that our government was at war with our family and with our child. Picking on things that really aren't their business. Yeah, right, exactly. It's really like about him and our family and the decisions we make with our doctors and our medical providers, and it really has nothing to do with the state government. Every human, right, is a reflection of the divine of perfection. I wished everybody believed, you know, that we could all that we could all understand that every person is in the image of God. Those stories are coming up on the next Hear Me Now podcast. Subscribe at hearmenowpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with Drs. Kevin Murphy, Rebecca Armendaris, Tara Kimbison, 
and Tom McNally. All four physicians began their medical training later than is typical. A couple weeks ago, I had a chance to talk with Dr. Bertalan Meshko, the medical futurist in Budapest, and he said rather plainly that if medical students today truly understood the amount of time physicians have to spend documenting clinical encounters and filling out administrative paperwork, that most of those students would abandon their plan for a career in medicine. What do you think of that, uh, Tom McNally? Well, I, I think it's he's quite right, actually. I think there are a number of people, if they knew how much time they were going to be spending in front of a computer screen um, and uh, or chasing down prior authorizations and arguing with insurance companies and saw how much of that was involved would be dispirited by it and would be discouraged. I, I say for myself, just like Dr. Kimbison, I am I am very grateful and love my work deeply. And I'm very fortunate because I have some protection because of the kind of work I do and I get more time to spend with patients. I also have a documentation burden and I also have those other burdens of the, the work as well that are are difficult and I think they could be better. They certainly could be better. The electronic medical record is a, um, a beast that we uh, unleashed and have not yet tamed and it, uh, I think if we could could push back against some of the, uh, the burdens of that, that might help immensely. But I, I think that's it's probably true. Um, I'm and, and you see this in, in you know, folks leaving medicine and in the kind of high level of burnout and, um, uh, and job dissatisfaction that I see in a lot of physicians right now. It is discouraging. And, and I do think it, it has an impact, obviously, on the physicians, but on patients, too, because if we're not bringing our joyful or at least centered um, uh, uh, and enthusiastic selves, we're probably not providing the, the mm. optimum care. Yeah, patients are paying attention. <laughs> we yeah. pick up on that. I'll bet, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is a lot of, um, yeah, paperwork for sure. And I know that all the, you know, patients' ratings, and I just realized one of the nurse practitioner and PA made a comment. Sometimes when they see patients, they tend to try to please the patient instead of doing what's right for them because, if they ask for a certain medicine, they insist on it, even though they think that nah, it's not going to benefit you a whole lot, but they go along with it because they don't want to upset the patient. So because if they do, then they get a bad rating, then it looks bad for the hospital and the hospital very much discouraged that, which I didn't realize to me, I've been pretty much saying, no, this is not the right medicine. And for example, if I see patients that have more stress-induced movement disorders, what we call is a functional disorders, then I actually spend time in telling them, it's not the hardware, it's the software, but this is who I am, this is what I'm going to work with you. And that's what I try to do. But when I heard that from nurse practitioner, that was very discouraging. Like, why would you still go along? So it's become, to me, Yes, instead of practicing medicine, it's become very much service industry. It's like a restaurant. Like, I want this to be done. I want you to give me that dish. And it's it's sad. There should be a balance, right? Definitely we need a patient to be very proactive, but, but I want 
the patients and caregivers knew that like physicians are also there to provide the best care, like personalized, individualized, right, care. Not if we didn't think that that was appropriate, we'll probably tell you, but not take it personally because you think that. So I think there needs to be a, some balance in it. It's sad to see that it's almost becoming a, almost like a service industry. That's what I'm seeing. And it's coming like a, a fear for these, um, yeah, healthcare professionals to be practicing the art of medicine, true art of medicine. I like what both doctors McNally and Kimbison have said, and I agree. And, and to reiterate or to kind of underscore one of the things that Dr. McNally said is it's not just about bringing ourselves, it's about bringing our best selves to our patients' bedsides because they are very aware that we are human, yet they hold us at a place and in a position of greater expectation. And that's a hard role to fill. That's a pedestal that you fall from very hard. And that's a challenge. I think that one of the things that I have come to realize as I entered college without any intention of going into medicine, like the whole point. And I focused on business and languages and I studied to do that. And I didn't like the entry-level business work. I thought it was pedantic and I transitioned into a different trajectory. Yet I've come full circle and now I am thankful for that because medicine is so much more than just medicine. It is the psychology, it is the office management, it is the data coding and analytics, it is the business development and uh, finance. Without those things, we would all fail. And so there's so much more to medicine than just the biology and physiology that we learn in the undergraduate medical education. And I do want to encourage folks who are thinking about getting into medicine later on in life to um to really take it seriously and and to and to give it a try and see if it works because I think older students do bring something important, important perspective. And there is um, that, as I mentioned, the outsider view can be part of what helps us uh, transform medicine in a more humanistic and ultimately sustainable direction. Can I ask a practical question along those lines? Um, if it were any other job, one of the things we might say to someone who's thinking about a mid-career change is to find someone, a mentor, someone you trust, and do a ride-along, do some shadowing, spend some time with them to see whether this is really what you're, what you think this job is going to be about. Is, is that a possibility for someone who's considering a, a career change towards medicine? I think absolutely it is. I mean, I think there there's a really powerful motivator for all of us to look to the next uh, generation of trainees, whatever age they might be, and to be uh, supportive to them. I think that mentoring uh, is extraordinarily rewarding. I suspect you would find folks. It's it can be a little bit difficult given HIPAA restrictions and things like that, um, but it's it's worth at least the conversation and start talking with folks about. Um, um, what might be helpful. And often it's your own doctor. Uh, if you're thinking about it, start there and see if they're not willing to have the conversation, if they can direct you to someone um, who can, can help with it. I think finding a mentor is not um, easy. Well, I really quite didn't have one. And I think that um, if you reach out to someone, maybe you might not have meet someone right away, but somebody will guide you. I think 
yeah, you just have to reach out, be proactive. So one last practical question, and uh, I apologize for springing this on you at the last minute, and it has to do with debt. If you start medical school later in life, you have fewer years to pay back uh, loans that you might have taken out to pay for your training. How does that figure into the calculation of whether this is something you can do responsibly, should do, really want to take on? Did it enter into your thinking? I was grateful um, to be able to actually take out the loan to be able to study medicine. I think it would have been really nice if we had a system where our education would be sort of provided, assisted, you know, by the government, but we don't. I think our U.S. healthcare, I mean, U.S. Um, education is the most expensive in the world, like to tell the truth. I mean, I occurred a lot having gone through also master's program, but in the end, if you live a very not like a humble life, it's just comfortable. I think you are able to to pay it. But if you are constantly appreciating only fine things in life, I think that might be a little bit difficult. But I think as long as your heart is in the right place, you will manage to pay that. And the best thing is not to be burned out by it. I think some physicians come and then there's like, I'm already burnt out by all the documentations, everything. They're leaving medicine way too early. Look at our previous generations. They were practicing, right? Well into the 70s and 80s, right? So if you're coming into mentality, I'm going to make a lot in 10 years, I'm going to be out. I don't think that's going to be the right, right? Because you still have a huge loan, more than $200,000 when you graduate. So I think just look at it as a journey that you're going to get there. And eventually you will pay it. You'll pay it. And I would not let that discourage anybody who, who's very passionate about medicine to go into medicine. Kevin Murphy, did it enter into your thinking at all? Oh, it absolutely did. I went into medicine as a third career. And so for me, I had a nice salary. I had a home, multiple car payments, multiple children had two more while I was in medical school. And none of those expenses go away when you're in medical school. When you're a poor college student transitioning into medical school, living poverty wages and living in a um, substandard apartment and, and working 80 hours a week, that's just part of the process. You graduate and you move on into residency and into practice, and then you, you earn your first paycheck when you're 28 or 29. And that's different. When you can't get rid of your house, your car, your kids, your expenses, when you're doing this, your loan burden becomes greater. But I knew that going into it, it was, it was a decision that was made. I wouldn't do it differently now. However, I, I would venture to say it's fair that most folks who go into medicine later in life don't do it blindly with the expectation that this is going to be a financial windfall and I'm going to be rich. Medicine isn't, medicine isn't that anymore. You can expect a very comfortable, solid uh, income, lifestyle, and attainment of this elite status. But if, you, if that's your expectation to be more than or better than, then medicine's really not the right career. I think that the biggest issue for me was 
life happens as you transition through that. And so things change and expectations change and um, you have to adjust. So um, for me, I became a single parent um, right as I graduated from medical school. And so I was a single parent of four kids and residency and, and everything after that was just a much harder challenge. And so that was not something I went into medical school expecting. Yeah, I actually, thanks, Dr. Murphy. I really agree with that. You know, it, it have, I went into med school with uh, three kids, nine, seven, and five, and um, it took me 15 years to pay off med school debts. And my wife at the time also got her PhD during that time. So we had double um, school debt. I think what helped us was, you know, we had been living at a certain level of uh, kind of socioeconomic status, and we didn't change that hugely when we went through medical school or even when I finished medical school. It's a little bit difficult because for me, entering into my job where my age-matched peers medically had been making a lot more money for a longer time. They were living a more extravagant lifestyle. So, you know, they're, they were sending their kids to private schools. They were going on much more extravagant vacations or they maybe had vacation homes. Those things are still true. I mean, I'm still sort of catching up in that way. Um, but that way madness lies if you start comparing yourself. I mean, it, it, at one level you can't do it, but it uh, if you're... I, Dr. Murphy's point is if you're going into it for the money, you have chosen the wrong career at this point. You'll do fine. You'll do fine. You don't have, you'll be, have reliable income. You'll have a reliable place to work. Um, but if you're going in to be uh, super wealthy, it's not the right place. And you'll, you'll be disappointed because it's really not ultimately what the work is about. The work is about connecting with people and it happens to pay really, really well. Was there someone in your childhood or adolescence who you can look back on now and say, they're the reason I became a doctor? Oh, without a doubt. I think that's probably twofold. The first is that my parenting and my, my, my dad and my grandmother were absolutely brilliant. And I always looked up to their intelligence and their knowledge, their wisdom, and their just ability to integrate all of those into who they were in their general being. But I never thought about medicine. No one in my family had ever been a doctor. I went to school to be something completely different and ended up loving being a social worker and then went to graduate school and got my master's and practiced as a therapist for many years. But it was as an emergency and trauma therapist where I worked with this brilliant late career doctor I found out later who, because of a really bad interaction with a surgeon and a patient, I pitched a fit and complained, and she challenged me to stop complaining about it and to instead go just be a better doctor. And I threw up all of these excuses because at the time, I think I was 29. I wasn't old, but in my eyes, I was past that. I had done my undergraduate. I had done my master's. I was actually on my second career because I had worked as a, a linguist and a human intelligence collection um, agent for the United States government. So this this was my would be my third career, and I threw out that I had never taken any sciences in college because I had tested out of all of those. And she very practically looked at me and smiled, and she just simply said, "They still offer them." And I came up with a half a dozen more excuses, and just like. Um, 
a marksman shooting in a shooting range. She just knocked them all out of the sky every single time. And finally, I got to the point where I couldn't come up with any more excuses. I was really leaning in that direction. I was thinking about it. And I called my dad, this super brilliant, pragmatic man. And I said, but dad, I'll be like 40 when I graduate. And very simply says, you'll be like 40 either way. It's just a choice you got to make. Um, you want to be a 40-year-old or a 40-year-old doctor? And so I did it. Very wise, very practical. He's still that way. Um, and so has very much been an instrument to my, my growth, my success. And I think the thing that has made the biggest difference is along the way, I've had some very measurable successes. Most people would look at me, uh, oh, a doctor, this is great. But I've fallen down, I've tripped, I've skinned my knees, and he's always been there either to help me get up or to walk with me as I uh, limped from the skinned knee that I got. Yeah. Dr. Murphy, I just want to um, clarify one thing. Um, human intelligence agent, is that a spy? <sighs> In the movies, it would be called a spy, yes. Okay. I just wanted to double check. I worked for our government. I speak Russian and German and spoke them much better in my teens. Was recruited out of college because of my language proficiency. They trained me in another language. I speak Russian and German. And so um, the latter portion of the 1980s and the early 1990s, I was in Germany picking up refugees as they came out of the former Soviet Union. And human intelligence just means I talked to people as opposed to listen to radios. That's a whole nother interview someday. I want to thank all four of you for joining us. It was great of you to take the time. Really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for inviting us and, and for um, asking us questions. It feels good to be asked. Just a pleasure to be held in the same uh, panel as this group here, brilliant folks. So thanks so much for having us. Kevin Murphy is the executive director of the Palliative Practice Group, the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Rebecca Armendaris is a physiatrist in La Jolla, California. Tara Kimbison is a neurologist doing locum tenens work in the Midwest at the moment. Tom McNally is a pediatric palliative care and rehabilitation physician at UCSF, working in both Oakland and San Francisco. All four physicians began their medical training later than is typical. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and the mighty Scott Acord, who wrangled four physicians and got them to microphones all at the same time. I tell you, it's a miracle. We have research help from medical librarians Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.